Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Hello and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. This is a podcast designed for HR professionals and focuses on providing tips and guidance on a wide variety of topics. And today we have a second part. This is part two of a two-part podcast that we are running with our good friends at Norton Rose Fulbright. And joining me, Chris Howard, from Norton Rose Fulbright is Paul Griffin. Paul, how are you doing? You all right? Yes, not, not bad at all, Chris. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back again. And my partner in crime, who's going to be firing all of the questions, who's going to be interrogating you, no, not really, is uh, Kathy Akratopolo from Lace Partners. Kathy, how are you doing? Hi, Chris. I won't be interrogating. This will be a very nice conversation, I'm sure. Just like <laughs> last time. <laughs> cool. Right. Well, I mean, last time we talked about duty of care. There's also a, a blog which we've released, which you can find on the Lace Partners website at uh, lacepartners.co.uk forward slash insights. And you can also see all of our previous podcasts as well. So that podcast was done a few weeks ago. It was pre the most recent government announcement. And there's been some additional announcements about furlough as well since then. So we thought we'd get on and have a chat to Paul and, and get a bit of insight. So I'm going to hand across to you, Kathy, so that you can, again, like I said, be the interrogator in chief. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and Paul, just before we start, um, great to see you again and, and have you on, on our second podcast. I wonder if it would be helpful if, if you just give an overview of Norton Rose Fulbright and also your role. So our listeners, if they didn't catch the first podcast, um, know who you are. Yes, I'm happy to do so, Cathy. So as hopefully most people know, Norton Rose Fulbright is uh, a global firm. We have around 300 labour and employment lawyers. I head up the team in London and I specialise in financial services, technology and transport. And we've been advising a lot of employers, as you can imagine, on um, getting into the furlough scheme, the various changes that are coming up in relation to the furlough scheme. Sadly, planning for redundancies as well, which is inevitable in some sectors. Uh, so doing all sorts of interesting things around that. Great. And I'm really, really grateful to have you on board, Paul. For those who didn't hear our last podcast, it's well worth a listen. We, we dug into all things related to duty of care, as Chris said, and also considerations about returning to work. And today we're going to focus more on furlough in particular. And also, as, as Paul says, um, the potential uh, considerations around redundancies. So as we did last time, Paul, I'm going to sort of come at this from an HR director's perspective. Obviously at Lace Partners, our clients are predominantly HR leaders um, and we support HR teams. So we hear quite a few questions in this space and keen to get your point of view and, and advice and guidance on, on some of these topics. And I guess when we look at furlough, obviously over the last week or two, we've had more guidance on the extension of the furlough scheme through to the end of October and more guidance in particular about how that scheme is becoming more flexible in terms of part-time working, for example, being allowed by the scheme, but also the way in which the costs will um, increase for the employer over the, the last remaining months of the scheme. 
I guess now that we're in a position where we, we have that sort of end date of end of October in mind, and for some individuals will mean that they've maybe been on furlough since the beginning of March or certainly during March and back dated to the 1st of March, I suppose it, it, it's trying to get clarity on what it is that we can expect from our employees or ask them to do whilst they're on furlough without really jeopardising our claim as employers from that sort of job retention scheme in terms of the payments that we're applying for for any employees that we do have on furlough. What's your sort of advice on that, that when you're talking to your clients in that space? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think um, I think the, the, the just to outline first what I think uh, employers are prevented from. The first thing is making money or employees making money for their employer uh, or even a company linked or associated with the employer. They can't provide services to their employer either. And if they're furloughed, all they can do is a a volunteering role, perhaps with a different organization. You can't ask them to work or provide any services. What the guidance has said is that it's okay for them to take part in training they would have to be paid the national minimum wage whilst they're doing that. Other meetings, you you may have to assess really on a case by case basis, depending on what the employee is doing. You, you know, I, I sense that to, to be safe, employers should um, take a kind of passive approach to anything else, at very least, and not make anything compulsory in terms of any meetings, even if they're just to update employees for fear of crossing the line. One does hear stories about employers actually requiring employees to do something, especially where they're topping up the extra 20%. That's not a great position to be in, unfortunately, because um, they either have made or they're going to have to make a declaration about the, them not having required employees to to work. And uh, you know that might be investigated um, by HMRC at some point. Yeah, and it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Um, You know, in terms of wanting to keep your furloughed employees engaged and feeling part of the workforce and that they are still an employee over this period, whilst at the same time not, A, putting them under any pressure to participate when they're under really no obligation to do so, but also not wanting to tip into anything that could be considered work or productive in terms of the company and its revenue or its um, services that it provides. You know, so it's, it's that tricky balance, I guess, of giving people the option of coming to maybe all hands dial in sessions to understand how the company's progressing um, and keeping up to speed versus not not really obliging them or, or making them feel obliged that they need to participate in anything beyond that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, a tricky area is also going to be where the employer wants to conduct a collective consultation exercise within that period, okay, because you're going to need some engagement with employees in order to do that, in order to prepare for redundancies that might need to take place uh, when furlough ends. And I, I, I think the jury's out on that, but certainly if you do want to do that, you should at least flag it to employees in your agreement over the terms of the furlough arrangement. Yeah, and I guess thinking about it from the furloughed employees' perspective as well, you know, they're going to want to stay up to speed with what is happening in the company and, and therefore the likelihood of when they might return um, in terms of company performance. And, and the longer for someone is on furlough, I guess the it's, it's just making sure that they are kept informed and 
understand the way the company is progressing and therefore the likelihood of when they might be returning. But as I say, without doing that in a way that makes it feel like or, or can be perceived as them actually attending meetings or actually working on behalf of the company. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about the HMRC sort of investigations, I guess we're not at the point yet where there's been any evidence of that. I haven't heard of any sort of proactive investigations, but but I guess that's the sort of thing that might emerge once furlough has ended in terms of companies, as you say, declaring that that individual has not conducted any work. But actually, at some point, there may well be investigations into whether they have or not. I think I think the problem is going to come when redundancies start, Cathy, because you can imagine if an employee now feels that the employer is pushing the boundaries in terms of what's acceptable whilst on furlough, you can bet when, uh, if and when they're made redundant, they'll be the first people on the hotline saying, I don't think my employer should have claimed for this because we were being asked to do X, Y, and Z. So, um, yeah, it's, it's quite a difficult situation. Yeah, I hadn't actually thought about that angle in terms because, you know, from an employer's point of view, you're saying, well, you know, maybe they would be doing spot checks, random checks, or as you say, where they're prompted by an individual who maybe is feeling aggrieved about something around around their experience, as you say, maybe selection yeah. for redundancy, then I guess that would be a natural way in which the HMRC may be prompted to uh, initiate an investigation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and and then I guess you know, as as I say, you know, we're, we're going through another few months of furlough as a scheme over the the coming period. When we when you do want to bring employees back from furlough, so let's say you know business performance is improving, maybe you're one of the companies now that that is able to offer its services or or, or you know continue working to a greater extent than you have done up to now because of the relaxing of the of the lockdown requirements. What are the legal considerations I need to take when I think about, as an employer, bringing back individuals from furlough? You know, what are the sort of questions I should be asking myself as an employer? That's going to become a, an issue, Cathy, you're quite right. The decisions for bringing people back should be based on uh, objective business need principles, <coughs> excuse me, and differentiation uh, shouldn't be on the basis uh, of any protected characteristics. I think that's the key. So, for example, choosing those without childcare issues, because you know that's going to be difficult or that are, people are not pregnant or not shielding, because you know they could be uh, lead to difficulties. That could be a problem. And um, as I say, if it's based on protected characteristics, it's either going to be directly discriminatory, no defence, or it's going to be indirectly discriminatory and the employer is going to have to come up with objective justification as to um, why it made those decisions. So, yeah, a, a potential minefield, which I think can be avoided by clearly anchoring the reasons to objective business needs. Yeah. And so let's, let's take a scenario, I guess. Let's say I have a, a pool of 100 people on furlough, all conducting similar roles at similar levels. I know that's oversimplifying things. But as a business, let's say I've gone from you know zero capacity of work and I've been shut down through to now actually being able to maybe open my workforce, my, my workplace, and I need back, let's say, 20% of that 100 people of, who are all doing the same sort of role. Mm-hmm. In terms of deciding who to who to bring back, if if you know I've got more people doing the same job than I need, you know as as I can I can clearly set out as an employer 
the skills and capabilities that I require and therefore the role type, I can be clear on my numbers. But if there's more than that on furlough, how, how do I sort of get to a point where I, I get the people I need back, but in a fair and transparent way? Well, I, I think you could certainly ask for volunteers, but it would have to be with the caveat that you may have to relook at the, the whole exercise if you don't get the coverage you need uh, in the office and consult with employees. You know, what, what I think employers are going to find is that they will have several employees or lots of employees who, for various reasons, are either would not would rather not come back to the workplace or simply can't come back to the workplace or start working right now. And it would be it would be better all round to tease out those issues before issuing an edict to all employees that uh, only some can comply with. So not a one size fits all. The ones that you can assume, I think, the ones that volunteer are in a good place to come off furlough and uh, continue their work, either be it at home or um, where they usually undertake their work. So that's a good first step, but be prepared to go back if you don't get the, the numbers you need and relook at it. But in conjunction with that, use it as an opportunity to find out what other employee circumstances are, because you're going to have to deal with that when the furlough scheme comes to an end and as and when you want people to come back to the workplace. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that on our last podcast, didn't we, in terms of return to work and and the need to really make sure that you're investing the time and energy as an HR team or as a business in in really understanding your individual circumstances of your employees so so you can help support them back into the workplace, encourage them back with, as, as we were talking about last time, you know, making sure they understand the measures you're taking to... Um, make the workplace safe, but also to understand their personal circumstances around any factors that would be preventing them coming back that may be related to them or maybe their direct dependents, for example, or people that they're sharing um, their homes with um, who may be impacted. So the same, I guess, as as you're rightly saying, the same applies for when people come back from furlough, that that actually, you know, that, that consideration of the individual circumstances will be key. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and um, it, it, there's no um, there's no time like the present for finding out these issues because they're going to need a lot of planning to prepare for the inevitable, which is, as I say, the ending of the scheme. And at some point, the majority of employees being asked to resume work as normal in the normal workplace. Yeah, and and just coming back to the first question around involving the employees enough to get that information from them, I'm I'm assuming that that it would seem perfectly logical that you're going to have to engage with your employees who are on furlough to have those conversations, and that isn't going to be something that would be construed as work in in the sense that it is all about getting them back into the workplace. That's right. It's not providing services, and I, I don't think that would be construed as work. I, I think it's recognised that there needs to be some contact with employees during the furlough period. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so, so we've talked about you know the things to bear in mind about what your employees can and can't do when they're on furlough, and also the considerations into asking who to come back and when. And obviously, as as we heard uh, a week or two ago um, from the Chancellor, you know the, the scheme is being modified, and you know we now know that from July onwards, people who are on the um, job retention scheme or on furlough could be asked now by their employer if they were willing to consider coming back on a part-time basis as opposed to zero work as it's been up until the end 
June. You know, from that perspective, my assumption is that when they come back into the the workforce, you know, in terms of um, actually conducting responsibilities for the, for their employer that they will be paid their normal rate of pay if you like what they were being paid before they went on furlough for what they work and and paid the furlough pay whatever it is depending on the month that they're in um, and wonder how you're topping up for the non-working part of the time now in terms of actually making that happen so again back to that scenario of I need a certain portion of my workforce back can I, as an employer, can I enforce that part-time return? Or do I need the, the employee's consent to sort of ask them to come back part-time, assuming that, you know, that that's a change in their terms in some way? Mm. And, and what do I need to do around con- contracts and employment, sort of the documentation that needs to go with that to reflect mm. that change? Yeah, it's really important to uh, realise, because this gets um, talked about a lot, that the furlough scheme doesn't regulate employment relationships, okay? It's out there, it can be used, but in terms of getting your employees to agree to enter the scheme and act in a way that's going to make the scheme work for the employer, that that's about the employment relationship and it's about employment law. It therefore must be subject to the agreement of the employee. Now, most people will have gone into the scheme pursuant to a, a, an agreement between the individual and the employer setting out the circumstances of the agreement, but it may not have been anticipated that the next phase of the furlough scheme would be uh, the opportunity to part-time work. So I don't think employers can simply say, well, you're going back to work part-time because um, actually uh, a reversion to their ordinary contract of employment probably has um, longer working hours, different arrangements that they're currently subject to. And therefore, you're going to have to get their agreement. Now, I think what has been symptomatic of everything to do with this lockdown situation and furlough is that employees, by and large, have readily agreed to uh, employers' reasonable proposals in this space. And um, I think as less and less money and support is going to be given to employers through the furlough scheme. There will be, I think, a recognition by most employees that um, this is the way it needs to go. And they would agree, I would have thought, to the the change to their terms and conditions of employment in order to um, support the next phase of the furlough scheme. If they don't, you know, it does get uh, a bit more difficult and there are certain things the employer can do. But um, in my experience, you know, most employees will agree to this. Yeah, I guess a lot of employees will, will just be super keen to get back to the workplace anyway and revert to some form of normality. And whether that's part time initially with a view to migrating to whatever their working hours were before, you know, that hopefully will be perceived positively. I guess for some it's going to, you know, depending on how much notice you give them and, and how soon you want them back on that part time basis, you know, they're, they're going to have to start maybe thinking through the childcare implications or whatever else they need to put in place to make that doable for them. So I guess it's about giving reasonable notice that that's how you would like them to return? Uh, Yes, it is. Again, it feeds into that point that we discussed beforehand, which is um, also respecting or at least considering the individual circumstances of those involved. That's going to be another element. In terms of the um, the notice to return, yes, that has to be, um, there's nothing 
specified in terms of notice anywhere. And indeed, it may have been dealt with in your written arrangements with your employees about the furlough scheme. If it's not, there's a good chance that reasonable notice will, would be implied at common law and um, as it is in various other situations. And uh, you know, um, I've heard a lot of the employers uh, discussing uh, as one week being a, a reasonable time. Now, it might be that uh, a shorter time frame is supportable in other contexts, but I, I think employers should be thinking about that as a, as a general heuristic. Yeah, exactly. And, and especially now, I guess, now we know how the job retention scheme will pan out now with effectively four more months of it remaining. You know, you have as an employer, that's not going to change now. That gives you that sort of plan as to what your cost base will be over that period. And therefore, you can be thinking that through. So, so yeah. a week's notice ought to be doable in that in that respect, depending would have on thought so. yeah. how their demand changes, I guess, in, in the marketplace that they're serving. Mm-hmm. Okay, so moving on slightly then, job retention scheme being on furlough, there's a few issues or points for clarification, I think, that relate to holidays um, mm-hmm. whilst you're on the job retention scheme. And Clearly, if someone currently is on the scheme, that they're not working, but they are accruing holiday. And, and my understanding is that, that if someone wants to take holiday whilst they're on the scheme, and then I think it's related to the Working Time Directive, European Working Time Directive, but, but effectively that, for example, if they were not being topped up to their normal salary, and let's say they're on 80% and, and the employer isn't topping up, my understanding that is that they are entitled when they, if they wanted to take a period of holiday during the scheme that they are accruing, continue to accrue as, as, as an employee, that that holiday pay needs to be at full pay level. And, and that's the same, I guess, for bank holidays as well over that period and that they're entitled to to their normal rate of pay for their bank holidays. Is, is that correct? If I interpreted that correctly? Yes, they must be paid full pay in accordance with the latest case law and, and should reflect the overtime and uh, allowances as appropriate that they've uh, received historically. There are provisions in, you know, because it, it's going to be difficult for some employers to be able to pay full pay during that period. And, and there are provisions in the working time regulations which uh, allow employers to stipulate when holiday must be taken and and even undoing existing holiday. There there are kind of notice requirements where the employer needs to give the same amount of notice uh, as the time being requested to take the holiday or the cancellation of the holiday. So, you know, if it was a week's holiday, you need to give a week's notice that it's going to be cancelled. So the employer does have control over the holiday. Uh, But they also need, I think, to think about uh, employees taking a whole lot of accrued leave when they're back, when it could be busy for you, you know, um, when things to come uh, start to come out of lockdown. um, There's a a lot of talk about an uptick for businesses and uh, you don't want everybody on holiday when they're in that situation. No, absolutely. And I guess quite often an employer's holiday year will run from January to December, let's say. And if, if someone has been on furlough from March through and is there until the end of October, let's say the full duration of the scheme, and they haven't taken holiday because, you know, it, it, let's say they're on full pay anyway and that the employer is topping up, then then why would they take annual leave over that period if it doesn't affect their rate of pay, for example, mm. then, you know, they could be coming back on the 1st of November with a whole chunk of time 
to try and take off in that period. And as you say, if, you, if you're an organisation that, that actually is, is, is anticipating an uptick and is expecting, therefore, to or, or planning on having their full headcount available to them, accepting sort of, you know, your, your typical holiday take up over that period, then that, that will cause operational challenges. I, I know, obviously, that the employer has the has the right to sort of agree or, or not to sort of consent to the holiday in the first place and that you request your holiday entitlement. But, but I'm conscious that the statutory carryover periods are changing or have mm. changed as well. So I guess to accommodate the fact that employers haven't been able to necessarily or employees haven't had the opportunity to take the leave that they wanted to over that period um, and therefore the carryover is changing or has changed? Yes, there's there's the ability um, for uh, the carryover of four weeks of the statutory leave for a, a two-year period. The provisions say that where it's not reasonably practicable for the employee to take it, then it, it, it can be carried over. It, it might be reasonably practicable, though. That's that's the first thing because, of course, this isn't doesn't have any reference to, you know, it's simply the it's not practicable to take it because the employee can't go away on holiday. That's 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 not the test. Mm-hmm. So the the employer must first ask themselves, well, is it reasonably practicable for uh, employees to take it? But mm-hmm. it, it might be that it's not reasonably practicable for them to take it right now because the employer can't afford it because it's payable at full pay. So that that might be um. A, um, a situation that some employers are in. So employee employers can still uh, make sure employees take the holiday this year if they want, if they don't want it dragging on. Um, it's not possible to pay in lieu of holiday except on the termination of employer, in employment. And employers actually have a an active duty to ensure employees take their holiday ultimately. So the employers do need to give some thought to this. Uh, It shouldn't be forgotten, though, this provision is to help employers. It's not a kind of license for employees to elect to take holiday over that two-year holiday, uh, to take holiday over. Although from an employee relations perspective, as this is an option available to employers, uh, employers should be thinking about the messaging around this if they deny employees the right you know, if you're insisting they're going to take all their holiday in what's left of the year, employees may know that it could be carried over. Yeah. You need to think about how you're going to communicate that. Understood. Understood. Okay. So let's, in our in our last few minutes, let's come on to the, the topic of redundancies then. And clearly, the furlough scheme is there to hopefully prevent um, some level of redundancies, but but as as we sort of emerge from the furlough scheme, you know there will be organisations that that just can't afford to employ their current workforce at at the current levels post furlough, or even during during the next few months. And obviously, each employer will be familiar with with the normal sort of redundancy approach. So I really just want to focus in on whether there's any COVID nineteen specific factors that I need to take into account when I'm looking at as an employer potentially selecting those who might be impacted or at risk of redundancy. Yeah, sure. So choosing employees for redundancy out of a pool, for example, of employees that must be undertaken by using objective, fair, and non-discriminatory criteria, okay? So using any COVID-19 factor is unlikely to be fair and and is 
likely actually to be discriminatory based, for example, on disability. There's growing evidence that the uh, effects of COVID-19 are long lasting. So maybe a disability for the purposes of the Equality Act. And in any event, if people are in the category, for example, of clinically extremely vulnerable or just clinically vulnerable, it's likely that they would either have a deemed disability or something that's capable of amounting to a disability. So you'd have to be very careful in factoring in any COVID-19 reason into selecting somebody. In addition, if they can't, if the individual can't return to work, perhaps because of they're, they're pregnant or maybe you know they're in a, a BAME category and they've been particularly impacted by COVID-19 for reasons that we don't quite understand yet, or perhaps they're shielding a, a, a vulnerable person, then they may have a discrimination claim uh, in relation to this. And you know if. Um, if employees are uh, are saying that they don't want to return, for example, because th- th- they perceive a, a serious and imminent danger in the workplace and they're just chosen for redundancy as a result of that, then they do have avenues of claim of claims through the Employment Rights Act to say that they were they suffered a detriment or they were dismissed because of this trying to avert this serious and imminent danger. So the employer is going to have to be very careful. And, and finally, there, there might even be whistleblowing claims. You know, I, I, I made a protected disclosure to my employer based on my concern about health and safety and the workplace. And in the face of that, they, they chose me amongst other people to be made redundant. So, you know, it, it's perhaps more important than ever that when choosing people from these pools that uh, employers are, are using fair, objective mm. criteria, which are non-discriminatory. Yeah, so lo- lots to think about on that front, I think, as, as organisations maybe come to that conclusion. If we, if we think, therefore, specifically around the furloughed employees and redundancies, the considerations around that, given that, that ultimately, because they're on furlough, you are effectively saying that their roles are, are not required in the organisation, and it's only when maybe the business ramps up again that they would come back. The likelihood is that that's probably the first pool of individuals that, that are likely to be impacted. That may be so, but it's not necessarily the case, I think, Cathy, because um, they're furloughed because of a temporary situation which can change, whereas uh, others might be conceivably targeted because uh, of a a longer term decision uh, about the the business. It might be uh, that it's just not viable uh, anymore um, or certain parts of it are not viable. And, uh, you know, they, they, they may not only be people that are furloughed at the moment. Yeah, understood. Um, I think it's important, though, to to understand that in relation to redundancy, employment tribunals don't, they're not going to go behind the business's decision, usually, as long as the employees are chosen fairly and for non-discriminatory reasons. I think that the employers have a lot of latitude. Okay, okay. Paul, uh, I think we're out of time. It's been a really, really useful conversation. Thank you so much for your advice and guidance. I think this one combined with our last podcast answers a a, a really significant number of the questions that 
our HR clients are certainly facing and I'm sure they will find that incredibly useful. So, so a big thank you from us at Lace Partners for participating again and um, subjecting yourself to our, our grilling, if you like, around, around the topics. It's been really much appreciated. Thank you. It was great talking to you, Cathy and Chris. Yeah, Pleased no, to be on. Really, really good to have a chat with you, um, Paul. And I'm sure we'll definitely be getting you on to talk about other subjects in the coming sort of weeks and months. Of course, if you like the podcast, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can do so via Apple iTunes. You can also listen as live stream on the Lace Partners website. You just need to go to lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast. We're also on Spotify as well. You can also listen as that as a live stream. The account is also available on SoundCloud and we push out lots of information on the Twitter and um, Lace uh, partners uh, page as well so you can find us on linkedin by searching lace partners and of course we're on twitter which is lace at lace partners too paul thank you very much for for joining us today and kathy thank you very very much for the uh, the in-depth uh, questioning pleasure thanks pleasure and we'll see you all again next time on the hr on the offensive podcast mm-hmm.